The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, you guys, I want you to, to think about and answer this one question with a pointed finger. I want you to point at the person in your family who loves to argue the most. Just point at them. Shame them. Why are you pointing at me, Ma? I said, I didn't think that this, I didn't think that went through. My mom and my brother did both point at me. Today we're going to talk about arguing. Today we have a, a unique opportunity for the month of June. It's a mini-series within this series. We're in the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 27. So if you want to start flipping or scrolling there, please do that. And we're going to look at how to argue. We're going to look at how people argued with Jesus and then how we can learn to argue like Jesus. And what's interesting about this is it gives us an opportunity to talk about subjects, um, which typically I don't think churches should emphasize too much, really next week's. This week we're looking at how to talk about Jesus and really have an eternal perspective, what that looks like in the midst of arguing with someone, how to have a, a godly perspective. Next week, one of my faves, how to argue about politics. Who's pumped for that? Yes, I am super excited. And then we're going to talk about how to argue about theology and then how to argue about morality. And it's a mini-series within the series. It's Mark Part 2, for lack of better terminology. And the reason why I ask you to point at the person who loves arguing most in your family is because every one of us here gets in arguments. Whether it's with your spouse, a coworker, a sibling, a neighbor, all of us here at some point or another have gotten, are in the midst of, or will get into an argument. And I want us to know how to argue like Jesus. In, in this first story, we're going to read in Mark chapter 11 through 12, 12. Uh, we're going to see what Jesus does when someone tries to argue for the sake of arguing. Every person that you just pointed at, and if maybe you didn't point, maybe the person who's your arguer is at home, so you pointed like due east or west. Yeah, I know who it is. I need you to understand that some of us, and there's a reason my family pointed at me, I'm the arguer in my family. I, I will argue because it is fun. I will argue because I enjoy it, and I will argue because I will win. You may laugh. The number of times my mother has said this exact phrase is astonishing. You know you're not right. I know you're not right. But just because I can't win this argument doesn't mean that you're right. To which I walk away thinking, you know that's right. I want us to learn, instead of arguing from our perspective, for our rightness, for our victory, I want us to look at what happens when Jesus is approached by somebody who are trying to argue with them for argument's sake. And what he does can help us shape our arguments to be more God-centered and loving and forgiving and merciful and gracious. So we're going to read the word of God, then we're going to pray. Verse 27 of chapter 11, it's up on the screen if you haven't flipped there in your Bible. This is the last week of Jesus' life, the week where they just hailed him to be the king, the week where he had finished his miracles, he had healed some people, cursed a tree, flipped over some tables, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. These are religious people going to pick a fight. I've never heard of religious people picking a fight ever in my life. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? All the things Jesus was doing, saying this, the, the money changers are bad, flipping the tables, cursing the tree, healing people. They're saying, who gives you the authority to do these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, because he sniffs out that they're not here to have an actual conversation. They're here to argue for argument's sake. And he says, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He said, like, you got a question for me? I got a question for you. Jesus is trying to discern 
where is your heart? And we would all do well to learn this lesson. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For all the people held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is Jesus having an argumentative person come up. I pray that we're going to learn how to argue from his perspective this morning. So we're going to pray this in and unpack it. Father, we are all people who have argued in the past or are arguing presently or will argue in the future. We are all people in this culture, God, we are addicted to outrage. I pray that today we would put the outrage to death. That we would learn to love people and see people as Jesus sees them. That we would be wise and discerning. Lord, help those who are from, from middle school up to, to older adulthood, Lord. Help us to have your perspective on engaging with others about tense topics. Lord, help us to look at this passage that you recorded for us so that we can learn to argue like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a word, it's a, it's a word that's not used super often, but it floats around society. It's the word discernment. Can you all say discernment? One, two, three. Discernment. It's the ability to see something, to know when something, uh, if it's true or false, or to look beneath the layer to look at the motives of a person. When it comes to arguing, there are a few types of people. There are the people like my hard wiring is to argue for argument's sake. I used to love, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I was zealous. And I studied a lot of the cults, and I studied, uh, and particularly in, in our area, there were a lot of the people of the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, also known as elders, even though they're like 18. And I used to love it. I used to de devour like a fine cheese and wine. When they were coming down their streets on their bikes, I used to want to get things set up, and it was like Paul Revere's chance. The Mormons are coming. The Mormons are coming. And little did they, they know that because of my fondness of them, I had gone into a Mormon uh, a church building, and I had, I had procured a Book of Mormon from the 1940s. It was before they edited out some of the super racist stuff that they had on there. I had purchased the missionary training manual that they used to train the elders that ride around our communities. Um, I'd even, at one point uh, later in life, I purchased a pair of their holy underwear. They have special underwear, which as a chapel, I'm against like bumper stickers and t-shirts just for the fun of it, but I, I'm super on board with getting chapel underwear. Just like a side note, if we can get some like some silk things, they look like those ranger panties. That's what the army rangers call these are ranger panties. I was like, those are weird old man jogging shorts, you know, and just get them like monogrammed, the okayest church ever. That's, I'm ready for that, but I had, I had me some Mormon underwear. I had me the Mormon training manual. I had the racist pre-edited version of the Book of Mormon. I had read the Book of Mormon now multiple times, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl Great Price, and whenever I saw them, my goal was to destroy. That is not, that is not a godly approach to arguing people. Arguing should not be so that your perspective dominates the other person into silence. Whether it's a spiritual religious argument, whether it's an interspousal argument, or a friend, or a neighbor, or a child to a parent, or a parent to a child, the goal should not be to dismantle and smash people so that you reign the victorious king. And I know what some of you are thinking. Because some of you are the arguer like me. You're thinking, but it's so much fun. I love to win. But I want you to take a step back and ponder all those times that you've won an argument. What was accomplished? 
Never once have I had someone that was a Mormon or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Jehovah's Witness after a dismantling of their logical fallacies, have I ever had them come to me and say, you know what, you're absolutely right. It's time for me to surrender my life in this religion and believe in yours. Never once. But I've walked away from plenty of those where they have no words to say. Never once have I had that conversation, even when I was a teenager with my mom, where she says, you know you're not right. Just because I can't say anything else doesn't mean you're right. Never once have I walked away thinking, I've really improved my relationship with my mother now. Never once. See, when Jesus argues, he's doing one thing first. He's discerning, why are we having this conversation? And, and we would all do well to pause when, when we feel tension being stretched to ask, why, why are we having this conversation? Is this so that one person can exert their theory of rightness over another? Or are we actually trying to engage one another with love and kindness? Are we actually trying to elevate the life of another person so that they know more about God, love more about God, and trust and love his plan for their life? It becomes very different. There's a phrase in the Bible that talks about casting your pearls before swine. Taking something that is valuable, like your time, your energy, your thoughts, and throwing them before pigs who will trample them. In this story, the religious people are saying, we're going to pick a fight. Jesus, Jesus came in and flipped up these tables. Jesus came in and said, he's going to do all these things. And he's saying that he has, this is his father's house. Oh, yeah, we're going to ask him, who gives him the authority to say this is his father's house? Nobody fights like religious people fight. We are the best at it. We are the best at it. The very first church, the church I got saved at, I saw an elder take a fist swipe at a pastor. After the, the pastor retired, they were hiring a new pastor, and I remember we had a pastoral congregation vote for the new senior pastor, and the vote was 51 to 49%, and there's over like 1,000 votes. And the, the grace of one guy got up after they had the pastor go out, and that pastor wisely said, I'm not going to this church. One of the elders got up, and he slammed his fist on the table and said, this church will submit to me and vote for this pastor because that's how Christians fight. No, that's not how we fight. We don't fight with force. We fight by laying down our life. Jesus didn't engage these people by saying, you want to know whose authority I can do this by? Because remember, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He could have zapped him with laser beams from his eyeballs. He just shriveled a tree with a word. The last person I mouth off to is someone who can shrivel a tree with a word. We have, this, we have this thing in my house where um, I'm the boss, okay? After my wife and Jesus, okay? But like with the kids. And, um, and I have a, I've, I've created in my family an atmosphere of dad is the scariest one. But there's another person that God has gifted with my proclivities to debate, and that is my son Jackson. Nobody look at him. Don't shame him. Shame on you if you shame him. The shame's on Jesus because he took it on the cross. Jackson and I, um, we're, we're very similar. And we struggle from the same core issues, namely like pride being one of them that I'm always trying to battle. And I, I gifted that to him. It's like a gift of a rotten porridge. And he, unfortunately, has it. But I'm a pot stirrer. So my son's playing chess with my younger son. And Jackson knows, he's like, I'm going to beat this kid in chess. And as a poor, poor father, I think, I'm going to teach Jackson a lesson through Silas by helping him whoop Jackson in chess. Now, keep in mind, the backdrop of this is in our beautifully decorated breakfast nook. And, uh, and, and before we get to the punchline of the story, 
we just redid all of our cabinets in the kitchen, and they're amazing. They're, they're this color. I don't know. I told my wife the cabinets we had before worked fine. They opened and closed, but apparently they need a different color. So anyway, they're there, 70-plus hours of my father-in-law slaving away in our kitchen, all these beautiful things. It looks like an HGTV show. And then we go back to my kids. The day after the cabinets are done, my kids are playing chess, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get Silas to beat Jackson to teach him a lesson about pride. I'm going to use my pride through Silas's pride to crush Jackson's pride. And it happened. And then Jackson, after he got defeated by Silas's pride through my pride, went and said hello to one of the cabinets that were brand new. He said hello in such a way that my pride became angry pride. And now there's a crack in one of the cabinets. I mean, just the day after they're done, and one of them is just white Joanna Gaines-looking cabinets. Just done. And I start to go full dad mode. And we're now in an argument. The argument, many of you parents know, goes something like this. Go to your room. And this is me praying. Bring down your temperature, sinner. I'm praying that in my head. And then we have these arguments about why this happened, why that happened. The scariest thing about arguing with your children is that, one, until they're a certain age, you're always right as the parent. You're always right. As a parent, we have a default answer. It's one that I, at one point, swore I would never use. The default answer that every parent has given every child starts with a B. What is it? Because I said so. Now, here's my problem with this. Before I had children... I was a Y kid. I'm still a Y kid. I'm just a, a Y kid trapped in a grown man's body. And I used to ask him, why, why, why? And my mom would eventually get to the point because I said so. So when I married my wife and found out we we're pregnant, I vowed in my mind, I will never say because I said so. I'm going to answer my kids' why questions all the way down to the very bitter end if I'm talking about cosmic molecules and space dust. Fast forward like 18 months later. My first son's just asked me, why, 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 why? And I feel it bubbling up, just like old coffee. Because I said so. Now it's my favorite thing to say. It's a conversation ender. Like, conversation enders are so good with children, right? Because before you have kids, you just don't realize, like, I need peace. And whatever it is, I'm using it because I said so. Why? Because I said so. I've gotten now to the point where I just point. They walk in, and I just, and this means because I said so. You can win arguments by shutting people down. You can, but is it the way Jesus argued? Jesus wanted to know if they were genuinely seeking him, so he asked them a question. Sometimes we need to ask questions to find out, is this person really want to have a conversation, or do they just want to converse at me? There's a big difference. And what Jesus does is he gives them, and he gives himself a moment to have perspective. A moment to say, what is the thing that we're really talking about here? Do they really want to talk about me? Perhaps you have people that talk to you about Jesus, but they have no intention of actually changing or following Jesus. I meet people like this most often for some reason at Foundation Coffee in Riverview. People that have these questions and I come to realize that they actually don't want to talk about Jesus, believe in Jesus, even think about it. They simply want to bark about Jesus to someone who they found out was a pastor. And maybe you've had that experience. Someone finds out you're a follower of Jesus, and they say, well, uh, here's why I don't believe in God. And they start giving you reasons. 
sometimes I've, I've had people, there's one person in particular in my mind that stands out. Whenever I see this person, instantly he just jumps in. Like, so do you want to talk about God and theology? And I remember the first time I dabbled in with him a little bit into the pool of argumentation. And then the second time we had built this conversational friendship when we saw each other, uh, he said, hey, how's it going? What are you talking about in your sermon this Sunday? And then he started going down the debate rabbit hole. He said, what do you think about this? I said, I don't feel like talking to you today. He said, aren't you a pastor? Aren't you supposed to talk to people about Jesus? Not you. Let me check with God. God said no. <laughs> Done. And when a pastor looks at someone who wants to talk about Jesus and says, uh, I don't think God wants me to talk to you about Jesus, the bewilderment is so fascinating to me. And it's, I've really become addicted to it. I, I like shocking people by saying no. I say no to a lot of things. You know, I say no when, when random people who are trying to antagonize me want to talk about God. And, and I get it from here. Jesus pauses and he says, they're not actually after a true question. They're, they're trying to give me a verbal beating. And I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. Not that I'm calling all people pigs, but some people are pigs. And don't hear me wrong, pigs aren't all bad. I'm a huge bacon fan. Every time I see a pig, a baby one, I think bacon seed, yum, okay? So not all pigs are bad. But I need you to understand that if you go into every conversation full tilt, ready to argue till you die, ride or die, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to do a lot of damage, and you probably won't accomplish much. Jesus effectively said, if you're not going to talk to me in a human way, I'm not going to answer your question. And then he just jumps into a story about them. Jesus always talked in these stories. I, I love it. So they, he says, you don't want to talk to me? Fine. We're done. This is the most loving human who's ever existed said, no thanks. So if he could do it, you can do it. And then he tells them a story. Now this is pretty wild. He says uh, in a parable, he began to speak in parables, a man planted a vineyard. If you're new to church, a man in this story is God. I'm just going to short circuit the whole parable interpretation for you. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to the tenants, who are the Jewish people, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent servants to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another and him they killed and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, his beloved son. Finally, he sent him, the son, to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants, the Jewish people, said to one another, this is their heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it, it is marvelous in our eyes. And the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him because he was telling these stories. But they feared the people, for they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus is telling a story of how God, in the beginning of human history, created for himself a people. And he said, you're my people. I'm going to teach you how I created this universe to operate. I'm going to give you sets of moral and civil rules so that you can be a type of people unlike any the world has ever seen. And all I ask is that you be in relationship with me. And the arc of history in the Bible is you start with creation, a high point. Two people running around naked in the garden eating fruit. Ate the wrong fruit. Goes really bad. 
All of a sudden, Jesus, God says, I'm going to send someone who's going to get you out of this mess. You broke relationship with me, and we went down, but I'm going to make someone who's going to restore relationship. And those, from those people, Adam and Eve, the first people, we see God move into Abraham, where he selects for himself this unique group. And they're to follow God and listen to his commands. And some might say they were faithful. I think when you read the Bible, it's not a record of amazing righteous people. It's a record of really messed up people that God still uses, right? Some of us think that that song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had. I was just doing that so all the non-church people can find all the church people. We found you. We think of these people as biblical heroes. There's only one Bible hero. The rest are Bible zeros. Every person in the Bible has a huge flaw that God has to redeem, right? There's a murder. There's betrayal. Abraham, who our children might be singing songs about today. You know what song they're not singing back there in Kidman? The song about the other part of Abraham's life? Father Abraham pimped out his wife. He pimped out his wife a few times. That's in the Bible. Don't judge me. We just don't sing it back there. When Abraham says, we're going in this, these guys are scary. Oh, uh, hey, wife, can you go lay with them? If I did that to my wife, I'd be dead. I wouldn't have this job. Like on your resume, well, I went to a seminary. I've got some Bible degrees, and I pimp out my wife because I'm scared of people. Let's hire him to be our next senior pastor and leader of our group. Well, but what Jesus does is he goes through the story. He says, you guys killed all the people that God sent to you. God set you up with this beautiful vineyard. God set you up in this place where fruit would grow. God set you up in this place, and time and time again you failed, and, and God sent you a prophet, sent you a prophet, sent you a prophet, and you beat him, you killed him, you shamed him, and now I'm here, I'm the son, and you're about to kill me. And I'm letting you know that when you kill me, I am the center of all of this. From the beginning of time to the end, it came for me. Time existed for Jesus. History exists for Jesus. And you're about to kill me. That's what he's telling these Pharisees. Man, the prophets that they were talking about, God's sending prophets, they had some crazy messages for the Israelites. God told them to do things that I pray God would not tell any of us to do. But Jesus wants them to know, look, God sent you messages that were crystal clear. Crystal clear. If you don't think it's crystal clear, like our version of church learning is this. We come on Sunday, we sing, we open Bibles, we read, we study, we go home, we read, we study, we pray. When God wanted to get the Israelites' attention, he did things with prophets like this. Uh, Isaiah, I need you to teach Israel how unclothed they are. So you're going to be a living illustration, Isaiah. I want you to lay naked in the street for three years. Can you imagine that, that that's your prophet role? I'll tell you what. If you come in next week and you come in just bears the day you were born, say, the Lord told me that I'm supposed to be a naked prophet for Jesus. I'm going to be like, the Lord told me to get all the police and military people to escort you to a shallow grave. That's how that's going to go. And maybe, not the, maybe that's the wrong people. The Lord told me to get all of the people from New York to go take you out to a shallow grave. Yeah. But what would you do? Because Jesus is telling them, the, the Lord sent people to remind you, and you beat them and you killed them. And now I'm here, and you're about to kill me. The religious people, up in a huff and puff. <laughs> the interesting thing that I love about Jesus in this story is that he doesn't just stay in the moment where they're trying to debate him. He goes and looks at it from a different perspective. I need us to learn how to argue like Jesus. From a 
heavenly perspective, and let me illustrate. Uh, I, I just often, at being six foot six, I see male pattern baldness coming before any of you do, right? Because I'm above you. Not like morally, not giftedly, just like physically, unless, let me look around. Yep, I'm the tallest person in this room. If you have male pattern baldness coming, I see it. On the flip side, that's my perspective. I also don't know how tall you are. If you're under six feet tall, you all look the same to me. It's like looking at a flat version of Google Earth, okay? That's all it is. On the flip side, some of you have different perspectives. Some of you are down here. You see nasal hair growth before the rest of us do, right? Some of us see dust bunnies on top of refrigerators. Some of us see dust bunnies under refrigerators. I think about baby-proofing my house. My daughter, my fourth one, she's lazy, okay? She doesn't like to crawl so much. She's really behind in every metric, except for, like, gabbing at people. She talks a lot, which is, like, on par for females, I guess. No offense. And, um, but she, she just army, army slugs, doesn't like to get up on her knees unless it's carpet because she's a princess, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm remembering, like, this is my fourth kid. Like, for the first kid, you go through the whole thing. We've got to baby-proof the house. For your second kid, we're like, we got to get a couple things for these socket covers. For your third kid, you look around, you're like, do we still have any of that leftover stuff somewhere? For your fourth kid, it's like, if she puts her face on that corner, she deserved it. <laughs> like, that's what I'm doing. I'm putting bubble wrap on that mantle thing. That's on you. Don't be dumb, okay? But it's this perspective thing, and you forget. And some of you are like, well, you know, back in my day, we didn't baby-proof things. Yeah, the infant mortality rate was also much worse, okay? So, so you look down, you get down. What are babies seeing down here? I must find everything that could damage a human child. And you put little plastic things in the covers. And even now, we've got this carpet. We have this one rug in our house. And it's like, our house is fairly modern. And this one rug is like, I'm just going to look like the 70s right here, OK? And it's just shag, big white, shaggy rug thing. Yesterday, one of my kids dropped the battleship white pegs into the carpet where my baby crawls and plays. I'm like, that's the end of that baby. We're going to have to try for another. <laughs> no, you get down there and you say, if I'm Bella, what can I see? And you start picking them all out, scooping them all up. And you always miss something because you're an adult. There's always that time where your infant child goes like this, and all you see from behind is this. And you say, turn around. And they go, open your mouth. That's it. And you have to go scoop it out. Jesus' perspective when he's arguing is that he wants to show people God's perspective is. He doesn't just stay in the midst of this conversation. Where's your authority? Answer this question about John the Baptist. He says, let me tell you a story about history, about what I see, because I was in the beginning, and I'm going to be in the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So every time you get in an argument, if you can learn one thing from today's sermon, it's this. When you feel tension beginning to pull, hit pause and say, okay, right now I'm in an argument. In every argument, here's the point that everyone's trying to do. I want to get my rightness to become their rightness. I'm going to exercise my authority over their authority. But Jesus says, I want to show you a perspective that's different. Perspective that's different. First service, I asked someone to talk about a sin, and one of our middle schoolers volunteered. 
said, when people hurt you, and we, we went, took that into a journey on bullying, I thought, man, that's so, that's so perfect. Because kids get bullied, right? And we bully people as middle schoolers, and it's a little more explicit. As a middle schooler, it's like, ah, oh, you got big ears. You walk, you know, like a duck. You're pigeon-toed. Your head's too big for your body. Allegedly, people have said those things to people. And we don't grow out of it. We actually just bully people differently as adults. It's just a super sad newsflash for all you graduating people. Adults, we don't have it all together. We're just still teenagery, but with more money and, and more pride. It's super sad. No hope for you. Turn to Christ, okay? We argue and we bicker, but it's not about ears or the way you walk or the size of your head or whatever. It is. We, we shame people in other ways and bully people in other ways. But here's what, what we always tend to do. When someone attacks you, when someone's coming at you, the default is go back at them or run away, fight or flight. Jesus says, I'm going to pause and I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to show you a story that pulls you out of your perspective. Whether you're a middle schooler getting bullied, you're in a fight with your spouse or your child, you hit pause and you you do that thing like they do in movies where your, your spirit pops out of your body, and you're looking at it from an outside perspective. Just like when you're looking at baby-proofing your house, you have to get down to a different level, look at it from a different angle. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm going to show you something that covers all of your history, Jewish leaders. But when you're arguing, you have to step out. And like I shared with the young man going into middle school, I said, when somebody is bullying you, when someone's teasing you, making fun of you, I asked him, I said, what would you say to them? If you, you know, because he's a sixth grade. Is he going into seventh grade now? Oh, he's right there. Hey, Austin. I said, he, I said, next year you're going to start school, seventh grade, and you're going to have a beard like your daddy's. His daddy is Jared, the guy that looks like Charlton Heston from the Moses, Moses movie. I said, someone's going to say, oh, look at that beard. What are you going to say to them, Austin? What would you say, Austin? What are you going to say? Yeah. So someone teases him for having a beard at the age of nine or whatever he is. Sorry, I knew that. And his response, first service was, well, I'm more mature than you for having more hair. Because that's all of our response. Whether it's, well, I'm smarter than you. Whether it's, oh, I'm more able to do this project than you. Our default response is attack. But instead of attack, hit pause, come out of the situation, and look at it. And what I shared with Austin last service and now this service is this. The person who's attacking you, they didn't just pull it out of nowhere. Usually if, if someone's attacking you, if someone's mocking you, bringing you down, gossiping about you, it's that they've seen it done or they've had it done to them before. And to realize for a moment that every person has a unique story, like the old Chick-fil-A commercial, we don't know what that person is going through. We don't know the story that, that is unwinding in their life. But if we can for a moment hit the pause button, step out of our argument and say this, there's a God who loves that person as much as he loves me. Jesus died for that person as much as Jesus died for me. And, and whatever they're going through, whether they've been hurt, whether they've been scarred, I don't need to try to be more right than them for the sake of rightness. I need to give them the heart of God. Not just right so that I win, but right so that they are loved and they know more of the truth than when we started. And I know what some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Ryan, there's that Bible verse about speaking the truth in love. I love that, that verse. It's a great verse. But modern Christians use that verse to mean I'm about to be a jerk to you. If you ever hear a Christian say, if you're new to the church, this is a pro tip, free advice. If a Christian says, hey, brother, 
I've just got to speak the truth and love to you. Just brace for impact. They're about to drop some Jesus-y, snarly bombs on you. Speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth about Jesus in a, in a way that builds someone up toward God's love and loving others. And if you can step away and hit pause on any given situation, you can remind yourself that they're going through something that has caused them pain. Every time I sit down across from an atheist and they're just barking at why they don't like God, believe in God, believe in the Bible, I try to remind myself, like, they're not, they didn't just pop out of thin air. They've come out of experience where there was probably church hurt, church pain, church boredom, whatever it is. And I can't just bark and say, well, here's why you should believe in the Bible. Because there are over 25,000 manuscripts in the New Testament. It's the most historically reliable document in ancient history. And the literary styles of this is that. And I could bark all those out, but it never does anyone any good. Because it doesn't make a difference. If you tell someone all these logical things about the Bible, if when they were a child, someone used the Bible to beat them into shame and submission. You have to be discerning and be able to hit the pause button, step outside and say, how can I love this person the same way that Jesus loved me? Lord, can I have some insight into this person so that I can know with, with a little sliver of knowledge how you see them? That song from the Prince of Egypt, look at your life through heaven's eyes. That's what Jesus is doing to these Jewish leaders. He's saying, there's a big, bigger story here and you're missing it. The person that, that you're about to kill is the person who's the center of this whole thing. You're missing it. We're going to miss it in a lot of arguments if we are unable to hit the pause button and say, What's the big story and how I can love this person as myself? Because that's the commandment. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. We're going to miss, miss it if we're constantly obsessed with us being right, us being in charge, and we're not obsessed with both of us coming to know Jesus more, with both of us coming to live in forgiveness more, with both of us cherishing kindness more. Now, this doesn't mean you throw capital T truth out the window. Truth exists, and I'm very excited about it because it's what we're talking about this coming up. Next week is politics. How do you, how does Jesus argue about politics? How do we, with the election coming up, how fun is it going to be in here? I think we're going to have mock elections just for fun. That's a lie. Jesus, forgive me. But how ought Christians argue about politics? Because I'll tell you what it seems like we argue about politics like. Politics comes up. You got one side. It's like, get out all the guns. The other side, like, get out all the gun laws. One side's like, build the wall. The other side's like, I got a ladder. Like, it just gets crazy. But how did Jesus argue about it? We're going to find out next week. How do you argue about theology with other believers? Because nobody argues like Christians argue. If you want to start a good argument, just be like, we're going to have a Bible study on the end times. We're, we're preaching through Corinthians starting in the fall. There's literally a chapter where I'm going to, because we're teaching through verse by verse. We're going to talk about women wearing head coverings in 2019. Like, women are like, wait, do I have to wear one? Do you? I don't know. Come and find out later. Arguing about morality, what's right and wrong. I've never known a culture that argues about something that's right or wrong. We don't do that in our culture, right? Women's rights, right to life. Murder, sentencing, immigration, what's good, what's bad. How do we argue about these things? It begins with us hitting this pause and taking a new perspective and saying, this is not about me winning. It's about us pursuing love and truth above all things. Because I've been in a lot of arguments with atheists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Hindus, and my mother, where I appeared to be right. 
But I can tell you, none of those ended with the other party walking away saying, I feel loved, cherished, and respected, even though we disagreed. This is how Jesus argues. Hit pause. Give them a perspective that spans more than just your eyeballs and theirs. Step outside and say, how does God see this person? And then carry on with his heart and his grace. This month, we'll continue to learn how to argue like Jesus as people argue with him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so, I'm so excited to talk about arguing, Lord. You know how much I love it. And sometimes I wonder why you wired me this way, and other times I just embrace it. Lord, I pray for all of the arguers, my fellow arguers in here, that, that we would approach things with a hand on the pause perspective button. That we wouldn't simply jump into arguments for the sake of arguing. And Lord, I pray for people in here who have been hurt by the arguers, and people who, who have been battered by the religious angry. Lord, help, help all of us in the moments where we're tempted to fight through tension with clawing and yelling and shouting and controlling. Help all of us in here to hit the pause, to stand back, and to think for just a brief moment, what does this situation look like from heaven's eyes? And God, as we press into this month of June, learning how to argue like your son, I pray that we would do this always with grace and kindness and wisdom, that it would never be about us being right, but about him being right all the time. That it would never be about us having a victory, but that we would always point to your son's victory on the cross. I thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen.